Good afternoon. I'm Judy Cooper, uh, the, public, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and we're delighted to see all of you here this afternoon. This is um, Linda Duggins and I were, talk, we're trying to decide how many years we've been doing this festival, and we think it, this is um, the fifth year for four, five. <laughs> well, we don't know, but anyway. This is um, really the, the Pratt Library's signature Women's History Month event. And, and whether it's four or five, we're just um, really delighted that we're, we're having it again this year. Um, a special thanks to Linda Duggins from Hatchet Book Group in New York, who is really the uh, mastermind behind this festival every year. She, she selects the authors, and they're always fabulous, um, fabulous new authors. And also to Joy Bramble, publisher of the Baltimore Times, and the founder and producer of the Antigua Barbuda Literary Festival in, in November, and you'll be hearing more about that later. Um, this afternoon, we have a special treat for you um, as a prelude to the presentation of the panel of women's authors. Uh, and it's my pleasure to present to you one of Baltimore's famous women, Gail Danley. And before you come up here, Gail, I just want to tell you all a little bit about Gail. She, is, um, she does live here in Baltimore. She's a wife and a mother, a poet, a writer, a teacher, and an award-winning performer. She's won slam poetry competitions both nationally and internationally. And in 2006, she was named Young Audiences National Artist of the Year. You're in for a special treat. Ms. Gail Danley. to the choir. Y'all, I've been on the road for almost 20 years. My husband barely gets to see me. I'm lucky, though. I travel as a slam poet. I go from school to school to microphone to microphone, from classroom to classroom, and I tell our babies, I say, look, look, I got something for you. Mama got some poetry for you right here, right here in my pocketbook, and I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to give it to you, and they love it, y'all, because it's real. Say slam for me. Slam. slam. <laughs> <laughs> so, here's what I've learned in these almost 20 years on the road with the children. I have learned that there are two basic things that all of us need. We need to be heard and we need to feel loved. Got that? So my little question for you is this. Which one you doing? Okay. What you doing with your words? 
Are you listening to somebody? Are you sharing your real you with somebody else? Which one out of those two needs, which are what? Say them to me. Heard, love, are you using your words for? And you got some pretty words. We have some writers in here. And so you spend your lives and you spend your time getting your words down on paper, but I think Here's what I think. I think, y'all, that what's missing sometimes in the formula is that sometimes our words become more like, like masks and they don't really uncover who we are. Can I share one? Of, I'll just give you a little bit of one of, my, one of my poems and I hope you can feel. Go ahead and applaud. We get the energy happening. I'll just give you a little bit of it. It says, uh, the poem says, I am just like you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, when it's nighttime and them thug boys walk up on me, I'm just like you, right? Oh, I cross the street just like you. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I clutch my pocketbook to my side and I start praying, Woo, Lord, don't let them follow me to my car. Just like you. Oh, but this time it's daylight and I'm still scared. I am at the Richmond, Virginia Juvenile Detention Center. They sent me here so I can show these 14 cocoa-colored, orange-uniformed boys how to express themselves. Like Miss Judy said, I have a reputation. <laughs> they, say, they say that if Gail Danley can't snatch the real words out of a group of young fellows, you might as well throw away the key and lock them up forever. Y'all, those boys were looking at me like, What's up? <laughs> Security guard took my keys, took my purse, searched me from fro to toe and said, I'm getting ready to go get the fellas for you, Miss Gail. Just sit over there and relax. And he had a big old gun kissing his hip. First thing I noticed when our fellas arrived was how disorganized the hair was, how broken the eyes were. Listen to me, y'all. And I saw how our brown boys had their hands at the base of their spines, even though they didn't have any handcuffs. The security guard told him, he said, sit down and shut up. This poetry lady gonna do a poem for y'all. <laughs> tell you what, I should have typed him up a little introduction. But anyway, <laughs> I stood in front of our babies and I started my poetry because it is my job. Slowly I saw those 14 little cocoa colored heads moving inside of my words. I got close to them. I wanted them to understand what a black woman feels like when she's not afraid anymore. I wanted them to write for me. But first, I did my mama poem, all about mama's cancer. And I watched this tiny tear trickle down a little boy's cheek. I came close to him. I said, okay, your turn. Your turn. Paper, pencil, come on. Come on, write it down for me. Guard said, no, Miss Gail. These little men don't get no pencils in here. <laughs> what you think this is? Pencils are considered deadlier than guns, so I was finished, you know. I got my little jacket, and I headed for the locked door. Above my head was a mirror, and I could see our baby's reflection. Yo, Miss Gale, can I, can, I, can, I, can, I, can I talk to you a little bit, Miss Gale, before you go? 
Miss Kelly, you know that poem you did about your mama died. My mama died too. How are you using your words? Writers. Writer lovers. We got a whole nation of folk to say. So are you gonna go home tonight and curl up with your favorite cold or hot something and only write to yourself? Or are you going to, I'm so serious about this, y'all listen to me. Are you going to begin getting real with telling your own story down in words so that you can use your paper like a mirror and go, this is what I did. I remember when I went through, and then take the mirror and flip it around so that somebody else can be saved and healed with your words. Y'all, we really got a choice. I can't stay all day with you because I'm getting ready for a show across the street tonight. But here's my prayer. That as you wrap all these beautiful words around you this afternoon and you applaud and you purchase books and do buy the books. Yeah, because we got to eat too. But that you remember when you go home tonight that your words are more than just pretty little things that you decorate yourself with and never use to save somebody else who might be able to live a little bit better because you took a risk and you shared your story. Stand up with me, please. Come on, get up. I'm going to get out of here. Come on, stand up. I'm leaving. Raise your right hand and repeat after me. If you don't feel it, fake it. <laughs> That's what I told my husband last night. You ready? <laughs> Say, I am a slam poet. No matter what you tell me, I know how to take my life story. And sugar, it has been juicy. And sugar, it has been juicy. I didn't see no hands. Put your hand on your hip. And sugar, it has Good afternoon, everyone. It's wonderful to see you here, and thank you so very much for coming to this. I call it a fabulous event. I'm, uh, I'm Joy Bramble, publisher of the Baltimore Times, and also about um, five years ago, my sister and I tried to launch a festival, launched a festival in Antigua. I don't know how many people know where Antigua is, or whether you've been there, but it's a tiny island in the Caribbean. I was actually born in an island next to it. The volcano blew that up, so we moved to Antigua. However, the library in Antigua was destroyed by a, hurric by a, by a an earthquake. 
1972 and actually has never been rebuilt. And um, that's kind of, it was my mission in a way to try to see if we could have a festival there and raise funds to do that. So for the last five years, I've been lucky enough, first of all, I was lucky enough to meet Linda Duggins. And um, actually, she's like the mastermind behind this event and also the event in Antigua. I'm not a writer, but I'm really a writer's groupie. And I'm very happy to say that although we have never really managed to get the kind of um, numbers to come to Antigua, we've actually had a totally different effect. And sometimes you start an event thinking that one thing will happen and the other thing happens. What's happened in Antigua is that the children of Antigua have totally embraced the festival. Last year, we had over 700 children show up to our event. And so what we, are, what we want to do now is actually to produce some writers from Antigua. So look, in another four or five years, we might have some wonderful Antiguan writers actually coming to, the, coming to this event. So that's our hope. It's my job now to just say a couple words about the, about the authors. I've actually read all of the books, and they're all fabulous. So you really are in for a treat. Um, the first book is Minding Ben by Victoria Brunner. Unfortunately, Victoria will not be able to, to attend today. So I just found that out a few minutes before I came here. And the next of the authors actually here is The Good Daughter by Jasmine Darsnick. And that book, when I started the book, I absolutely could not put it down. <laughs> as I said, you're in for a treat today. Second book is Tiger Hills by Sarita, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Mandana. Is that correct? Yeah. And actually, I read that in the galleys. We were in Antigua, as a matter of fact, at the festival. And Linda said, I have this fabulous book. Why don't you read it? So that's what I did then. And the third writer is Butterfly Rising by, by Tanya Wright. And all of the, the ladies are here. Do you want them to come up now, Linda? So you can come up and come to the, to the on the seat. Gail got up and riled y'all up. You went back to sleep? <laughs> Wake up! Good afternoon. So good to see everyone. We are here to celebrate a few things this afternoon. First of all, it's the 100th anniversary of International Women's Day, as well as Women's History Month. It's the month of the year, although I think we need 12 months, ladies. It's the month of the year to highlight and remember the contributions of women with the hope that it will be impossible, impossible to teach or learn about history without the lives of women being remembered. This extraordinary panel of women, they are beyond amazing. On this stage sits professor, an attorney, an actor, film director, investment banker, friend, mother, daughter, maybe a wife, maybe a used to be wife, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there's only, three women listed here, and I think I listed 14 jobs and careers and hopes and women. Yay! 
celebrate and bring to awareness the beauty of the literary landscape's multicultural diversity. We'll explore Iran and India. We were going to Trinidad, but we had to make a detour. <laughs> and small town USA. We celebrate the craft of writing, and in doing so, we meet incredible women on the page, as well as get to learn about what drives one to write and to share family and dreams and hopes and aspirations all via the written word for each and every one of you to read. Jasmine Darznick, author of The Good Daughter, Tanya Wright, Butterfly Rising, and Sarita Mandana, author of Tiger Hills. Welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. I was reading uh, recently in uh, one of my favorite little magazines that I don't always tell people is a favorite little magazine. It's about this big. It's called Jet. Very interesting magazine. But anyway, that's another panel. Maya Angelou was interviewed in the recent issue of Jet, and she has a message for women. Maya Angelou says women must recognize their value, and we have to develop our courage. I mean, how much courage was required of women all along the way? She also said once you have courage, you have a sense of your own value, and, and the other strengths that we need will come to be. So in writing these books, there's so many different stories, so many different characters. Interestingly, uh, Jasmine's book is nonfiction. The other two authors wrote a book of fiction, but as a publicist and more importantly as a reader, I always think people write from what they know, where they come from. So there's always pieces of who you are in the books that you create. So ladies, how much courage did you have to muster up to create, to write, to actually put those, maybe those voices, or maybe those real people telling you, no, don't do this. Curious. Take it away. Do you want to start? Oh, now everybody's shy. I'll start. <laughs> um, I think that uh, as an artist, and, and I, am, uh, I am an actress and, and also a writer, um, you know, someone asked me the other day, I went to uh, Los Angeles about 15 years ago to pursue a, a career as an actor, and they asked me uh, what it was like jumping off a ledge. And I, you know, it was a very interesting way to put that. I was like, I didn't feel like I was jumping off a ledge at all. I was just felt like I was taking the next step. <laughs> and, you know, if, for them, it, it, it was as perceived as this, as this huge um, um, undertaking. Um, I worked, you know, at the New York Times, and I was very comfortable there, and I was, I was taking a detour. Um, but I think that an artist is, is constantly prodded to um, to take those leaps. And I guess, you know, if, if you don't take the leap, God, I, I don't know if I could live with myself. <laughs> you know, unfortunately. Because I'd have something in the back of my mind all the time saying, you know what, you should go ahead and take this step or take that leap. Because you, you, you know, and, 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 and there's, a, there's a difference. There's a healthy fear, and then there's a fear that, you know what, you shouldn't touch that flame because it's hot and it'll burn you. <laughs> but then there's a fear that it's like a moth to a flame uh, in a different way, um, in an exciting way not in a, in a sort of dreadful way. And, um, you know, I think, I think that you can, you can tell the difference. So uh, 
I think it's part of, the, uh, of an author's uh, or an artist's life mm-hmm. and her journey and her responsibility. Well, just to preface a little bit, um, I left Iran when I was very little. I grew up in California mostly, and the story of my book is really my mom's and my grandmother's story. Um, It's a story my mom had hidden for 50 years. Um, My mom had been married at 13 and gave up a daughter. Um, So this is a story that had been suppressed um, in my family. And I think in terms of courage, I think often about the secrets that we keep and the courage it takes um, to surrender those kind of secrets. Um, Especially for me, I grew up with a great sense of shame um, in being Middle Eastern, and, um, and it's taken a certain degree of courage, I'd say, to counter, um, really, I think, within my community, the Middle Eastern community, the fear that um, a story like the one I was telling would feed into Americans' worst uh, suspicions about Middle Easterners. Um, there's, there's domestic abuse, there's alcoholism, there's a lot of um, dark, uh, there are a lot of dark subjects. So it's been a, a, a It's been, I think, a tremendous challenge for me um, to find my voice within my community, a community that's really, I think, out of a sense of shame, suppressed a lot of the truth um, about women's lives in particular, I would say. Um, But I'm so moved by... The, po- the slam poet earlier and thinking that when you envision your, your words in service of something else, it makes you brave, I think. Um, and to the extent that I've been able to tell a story in service of someone else has made me brave. I've been able to be brave um, for other people in ways that I might not have been if I only thought this was about pretty words and my own pride. Um, so I've been really galvanized by service in words. I think, you know, my experience has been both somewhat similar to yours and a little different as well. Um, You talked about, I mean, basically listening to your heart and, you know, really following kind of the inner voice. And that was very much true for me while I was writing Tiger Hills. Um, By way of background, uh, I'm the investment banker that that Linda mentioned. Um, So I was working full time while as I was was writing as well. Um, And it was, um, you know, I was working in, um, in New York. And it was a very grueling schedule kind of writing this book. And it took me five years to write, and it was very much kind of writing kind of you know, 11 p.m. to 3 or 4 in the morning, and then getting up, going to work, and doing that day after day for five years. And, um, you know, I did it because, again, it was just, it was such an act of passion, and it was such an act of obsession to really, this was the story that I wanted to tell, and I wanted to tell it to the best of my ability. And I think more than courage for me, I think it was a notion of tenacity, maybe, and staying true to yourself. Um, it was a five-year project, and you know, I, I hadn't written anything before um, formally. I haven't been trained formally, and I had no way of knowing if this project, this book, would ever you know, see the light of day at all, or whether it would just remain as a bunch of files on my computer. Mm-hmm. But that didn't really, that never was, um, um, that never impeded the writing process at all. It was purely a project of, again, just something so from the heart, and um, there were definitely times when I questioned my sanity and kind of taking this on, writing about, you know, doing this big kind of epic kind of novel, but there was never a question of giving up. So I think more than courage for me, it was more a spirit of um, stubbornness, of tenacity of not giving up. Mm-hmm. Who, who did you each write your book for? We readers often wonder, I think, you know, as we, as we read, there's plenty of things we can all relate to in lots of different stories, but who did you think your audience was when you were writing? Um, again, I think you know, my answer may be a little different. When I was writing the book, um, 
it was just a story that I really wanted to tell. I mean, this was a story that resonated with me. And the story almost, you know, I didn't have it fully laid out in my head as I started writing. So it was almost revealing itself to me as well. You know, as a writer, I almost felt like I was the medium. And the story, this woman's story, these, you know, these characters were talking through me. And uh, I have to admit, I never really thought about it with a particular audience in mind, with any, you know, particular demographic in mind. Um, it was just kind of giving yourself over to the story and then let let the let the book, let the story find its way into the world and find its readership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in part, I was writing. I would say I was really truly writing to my editor because I had sold my book on just a partial manuscript. So at a certain moment, my editor became my ideal reader and my actual reader, and I was serving these pages. I, I teach creative writing, and I think it's so meaningful to have someone waiting like this, um, with hands open to receive your story. And I was so blessed with this wonderful editor, who even as you know the Middle East was periodically you know um, up in flames and Iran was hot for a minute, and then it wasn't. She just waited like this um, until she could get the best story out of me. So she became um, that ideal reader for me, someone patient enough to let the story become the best story it could be, um, who looked away when there was such clamor outside to possibly another editor might have urged me along to deliver this because it was marketable. But I had that wonderful editor who um, waited with hands like this for the story, and I wrote to her. Um, I would say that I probably wrote to the people who were going to see the movie Butterfly Rising. Um, this process of writing uh, was a, a little odd, I guess, you know, in, in, in terms of, of what it was that I did first. I'm an actor, so, uh, you know, dialogue came very easily and naturally. Characters are something that I'm interested in, in arcs. And, and I, you know, arcs tell uh, the story, um, the bigger picture. Um, and so I started there. So I wrote the screenplay for Butterfly Rising. I started, um, I started the sort of mechanizations to begin to shoot the movie that I wrote and directed. And I shot the movie and felt that the process was incomplete somehow. And I didn't know what, what, what that was. You know, I had all this footage on my computer, this movie, all these different pieces. And, and I, you know, I started to put it together, and I just sort of intuitively felt like it's not, it's not the right time to, 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 to sort of usher this, this baby into the world. And I sat with myself for about six or seven months, not knowing why that was. And I read this book um, about uh, film and uh, new media and things that are going on right now in the entertainment industry in Hollywood, and and the idea for a book came forth. Um, and I thought that, and, and I wrote the book. I wrote it very quickly. You used the word obsession, Sarita. I, I would have to agree that the book was an obsession. And I think that the, that, that it, was, um, <laughs> it was an obsession. You know, if I'm really honest with myself, I don't really like to write. <laughs> so I start with this, you know, sort of obsessive quality where I put myself on a, on a schedule that is, inhuman, really. Like, no one should operate in the world this way for a very short period of time, for a very concentrated period of time, and I got that first draft out because, like, I couldn't really function in the world until, until that was done. Um, and, you know, once I got the draft out, I let it sit for a year because, you know, when you write a, write a story like that so quickly and um, 
with such intensity, you really don't know what you got on the page. You don't even know if it's legible, if it makes any sense at all. So I just left it alone. And then a year I came back to it and started to look at it, peek at it. <laughs> I don't know what I got here. But then I started reading it, and I gave it to someone who is, is, is um, brutal <laughs> because I like the truth, and, um, and I wanted it to be good. And she said, go forward. I was like, oh, Okay. That was all the encouragement that I needed. Um, what was your question? <laughs> you answered it. Okay, because there was a reason why I was telling that story. But anyway, if I answered it, tally ho. What were some of your challenges and triumphs in terms of bringing it to life? And there's research and the, the literary, the psychological, the logistical. What were some of those things? I mean, you do have full lives, so how did it come to be? Um, in terms of challenges, I think for me it was just, um, um, you know, finding enough sleep <laughs> to kind of, you know, keep it together during the day and, um, you know, finishing the project. I think when I look back, I think that was like the core the core theme of that entire five-year period was just that I was so tired all the time. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, progressively degenerated, I think. And, you know, towards the end of that five-year period, um, I think I, I, you know, I became kind of borderline neurotic, antisocial. I mean, I think my personality definitely took a hit. Uh, my memory definitely <laughs> failed me. You know, it was it was horrible. I would, uh, you know, so my standard calls to kind of close friends or family was, you know, I just don't have the bandwidth. I would really, you know, use that word. So if there's something important, if there's something that I need to know about you, I mean, please let me know. But I, you know, if you're going to call me up and just have a conversation, I just can't because I can't even process the words that you're telling me. It literally got to that point. So I think that was the most challenging part. I mean, the, the lesser challenges were definitely, I think, as a writer, there are periods of you do strike certain grace notes in the process of your writing. There are times when you sit at your laptop and there are just passages that come out from some place you, you're not even aware of tapping, um, it tapping into. And you look up, and it's three hours have gone by, and the paragraphs that you've just written are perfect, and they don't need to be changed and they resonate with you in, in, you know, in a very special manner. And you know what you've put out there is kind of, it's, um, it, it's almost perfect in a way. It, it's, just, it's just what the story needed. It's absolutely perfect. But those grace notes, I mean, at least for me, were, they didn't come often. Um, there was a you know, definite period of, there were def, I, definitely, I definitely needed to knit those periods together with a lot of work, kind of a lot of perspiration in between as well. Um, the high notes, again, I think were when, you know, when I would write something and I would find that um, reality almost kind of mirrored fiction in a way. And I think when you write fiction, um, you're tapping into some kind of, prob I think the logical explanation probably is that you're tapping into some deep pocket of subconscious that you're not aware of kind of on a waking kind of day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. And for instance, in the book, there is a character who, um, you know, the book is set in a place called Coorg, which is in India, and Coorg is where I'm from. And... Um, the book has this character, uh, he's a reverend, um, he's a missionary from Germany who comes to India and he settles in Kook for a significant period of time. And that's based in fact somewhat, I mean we did have a mission in Kook. But I started writing this and imagining his backstory and I said well he probably, you know, he comes from the Black Forest region in, in Germany and that just popped into my head and I started doing all this stuff you know, this backstory and put it down. And then I actually started researching some of the missionaries who had been in Kool. And it, it actually mirrored it. I mean, I found somebody 
who was from that particular region. And, you know, it may have been something that I, I read way back when as a child and just simply did not remember. Mm-hmm. But it was so lovely when you find those kind of, you know, when, when kind of fiction and truth actually collide. And it's almost, um, it, to me, it almost feels like, like a, a signal that you're on the right path. You know, it, it's just kind of, you know, my kind of go for it kind of moment. So mm-hmm. those were definitely lovely. <clears throat> so what I was working, the biggest problem I was, or challenge I was working with was my mother. <laughs> so um, she and I collaborated really closely. This is a really, I think for a lot of memoirists, it really bedevils a lot of people. Do you wait until your parents pass away? You know, how do you handle telling a really painful story that might have ter- terrible fallout within your family? Um, I didn't have that option available to me because I really wanted um, to tell this story. So I chose to work really closely with my mom. Um, we spent about a year together. Um, she had made me these cassette tapes in which she told me the story of her life, basically. But they were shot through with all kinds of gaps and um, silences. So I spent about a a year. I'd show up at her house with a notebook and a pen um, and would get to work on the story of her life. And as you can imagine, mothers and daughters wrangle a lot. Um, probably lots of you are familiar with that. Um, and try to write a book, you know, with your mother is, is quite a challenge. Um, and, yeah, you know, it was it was you know, a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity and challenge. Um, it brought us much closer. It gave me, you know, so much more patience and understanding for her. Um, I think also one of the practical challenges to talk about, um, I was writing my dissertation, and I was swimming in acres of time. That was my problem. Is I had too much time on my hands, just enough to sort of... Um, you know, strangle myself with. So it was really when my son started preschool, and I only had three hours a day. I'd drop him off at school, and I would just go to the library. I love libraries. And I would just write, I only had three hours. And something about knowing that I only had to be there three hours really let me use that three hours of time. Um, it was a great state of grace to just have those three hours um, at a time. And I, I am so, I'm also very convinced that this um, sort of when life begins to feed, I think mm-hmm. even for a memoirist, mm-hmm. it was like a waking dream for many weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. Everything seemed to find a home in the book I was writing. It feels like magic. Um, and I've often heard writers talk about this phenomena where you'll come against um, some problem in your story and you'll go out for a walk and the answer will be yes. revealed to you. Um, and it's a state of hyper-awareness, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, I don't want to reduce it to scientific terms, but I think it's a clue that you are onto the thing that you have to be writing when the world feeds the page. Or um, you find the answers around you. Around you, all yeah. the time, mm-hmm. all the time. It's really, it's extraordinary. Yeah. May it happen many more times yes, to me. Yeah, and to just piggyback on what you guys just said, I think in order to do that, you have to be somewhat available to the download. Again, Sarita used the word, she just didn't have the bandwidth Mm -hmm. to deal with life things and write the project. I would absolutely, I mean, that was exactly, you used the word bandwidth, I use again the word download, I don't know what the the computer thing (laughs) here, but um, you you have to be available for the download of the information for the way that the characters speak, um, for, for, for the way to set the story or the scene or, yeah. or, the, or the chair or the blouse. Um, mm-hmm. And you have to, in order to be available for the download of information, you have to put yourself aside and all the sort of day-to-day functions that, that sort of get you through. Thank God I don't have uh, a husband and children. Sometimes that comes in handy, sometimes it doesn't. Anywho, that's another story. Um, <laughs> but, um, 
yeah, I, 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 I don't know um, what, what would, you know, should that ever sort of transpire in my life. I don't know how, how those, those bouts would, um, um, you know, deal with the f- family and responsibility. It's actually very interesting, the thing that you talked about. I mean, having to actually be open to, um, you know, to receiving the story, as it were. And again, um, you know, I was writing historical fiction, and I was writing it in New York. And it was definitely, you know, there were, uh, during the weeknights when I would start working, there was a period of transition between the workday and then pulling yourself out and kind of ignoring the sound of the sirens below and, you know, forgetting that you're, you know, just forgetting your surroundings and limiting your focus to just kind of the laptop and then the story. Um, And it was only then that the words would begin to flow. There was always this transition period where I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't, you know, watching television or reading or anything else. I was just sitting and staring at my laptop. But it wouldn't come because I was still kind of in kind of my real kind of day-to-day world. In, In each of your books... Women, the women, and then there's a few women characters, and not, and again, not characters. Lily is clearly your mother. However, where there were many limitations in what the aspirations were. I mean, a lot of them didn't dare to dream, and some actually did totally out of the, the role of what a girl or a woman ought to be thinking like. And when I introduced them, they, like I said, they, they do 14 things amongst the three of them. So when you were growing up, what did you think that you would be doing? I mean, I, I'm not sure. Did you think you'd have a book one day or all those other things I mentioned that you actually have aspired to and are doing? Is that something that you had planned? Because, you know, plans are very interesting, right? Yeah. Um, well, I actually, um, when I was a little girl, I wanted to be like six things. I wanted to be like a doctor and a lawyer and a ballerina and, like, astronaut. I had astronaut, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what yeah. I wanted. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, all these things. And so I felt like, you know, I can't be a doctor and a lawyer. You know what I mean? Um, so I felt like actor was the one role that mm-hmm. I could have that would satisfy my need to change and to be other people. Um, and so... God knows, I didn't, you know, I didn't start off my life at all thinking that I was going to be an actor in Hollywood. I was a very shy child. I would barely raise my hand in class. I was terrified of people looking at me, you know. Um, and so, you know, it, but, but, but actor, um, actor served all those purposes. But really, you know, writing was my first love because, again, I said I, w- I was a shy child. So, you know, the writing is, uh, you know, uh, appeals to the introverted part of me, the, the, the quiet part. Um, the need need for solitude, um, and um, so you know, I'm just I'm a lucky girl. <laughs> I loved language so much growing up. I was the child of immigrants. I grew up with three languages around mm-hmm. me. I only began learning English when I went to school, and I think for me, it really it always seemed um, that language words um, would be my life in some way. Unfortunately, um, immigrant parents hoist all kinds of aspirations on their children. There were two tracks. You went to law school 
where you went to med school. Um, and, you know, I did go to law school, and I was a terrible lawyer for a very brief time. <laughs> and, uh, and then I went back, you know, um, 15 years ago, there weren't as many MFA programs. What does a girl who loves books and stories do? Um, she goes to get a PhD in English. Um, and I'm, I think that was actually really wonderful. It was a wonderful training ground to read a lot, um, yeah. like I did um, in the course of my PhD. It was wonderful, wonderful training um, to become a writer. Um, but I did get there the hard way. And in my family, it was definitely, you know, you went to law school or you went to medical school. And my parents would have been horrified um, had I actually been so bold as to declare I was going to become a writer. Mm. Um, they would have been, you know, rightly, I think, quite worried <laughs> for me. Um, but uh, but uh, I'm, I find also writing, thinking of the deeper reasons why we write, I think writing is for me like that magic vessel that contains everything. Maybe it's my version of acting where everything I love and fear and hope and um, and want can be contained within this magic vessel I, cry, I, I, I describe as writing. Um, so I really do have great reverence um, for the process, and I think it's just I'm glad that I finally made my way back to the place that I should have been. Mm. Yeah. Um, for me, um, well, in the, uh, Tiger Hills, I actually dedicated it to the memory of my grandparents, um, both sets of them, my dad's parents as well as my mom's. Um, and both grandfathers in particular, I think a lot about my, my dad's dad and how proud he would have been to see his granddaughter have a published book out there because mm-hmm. I think he was very much kind of... Um, um, you know, I, I think he would have loved to be a writer himself. He wrote a memoir on his mother, kind of self-published it. And the joke was anybody came home, um, they'd leave with, you know, with a doggy bag and a copy of my grandfather's book. <laughs> so, um, and, he, and he drove my uncle crazy because, I mean, he, you know, he lived with my uncle and my uncle liked to read. And he said, but why don't you write? And he said, but I'm not a writer. And he said, but you read. So if you read, why can't you write? You know? so, they, so they had that argument, you know for many, many years. I I think of him a lot. And my mom's um, uh, father was actually, he loved storytelling, kind of a very oral tradition of storytelling. Um, And I remember just being, you know, really young and listening to him tell us stories about, you know, sparrows building houses of salt. And I I don't know where he dreamed these stories up, but they were lovely. Mm -hmm. And um, that stemmed, you know, that, I think that that gene got passed on to my mom as well. Um, and she, she's a huge book lover. And I grew up in a family that we always had books. And, you know, some of my earliest memories are of, you know, finding big, thick, you know, books uh, meant for my, you know, my birthday and kind of, you know, being precocious. I, I, of course, I found them before my birthday and opened them up and I read them. And it's, those are the memories I have, just books everywhere. Um, so I definitely grew up with that. But I, you know, to be honest, I, if you had told me, you know, six, seven years ago that I would have a published novel and I would, you know, be a writer, I would have, be, I would have been the most surprised uh, of anyone there was. Um, I, I thought I would write, but it was always one of those, you know, one day, someday, you know, um, get done with my career, you know, get done with all the finance and the numbers, and then maybe sit down and write something. Um, and then this just, it happened, it just happened. I, I think, again, about six or seven years ago, I had a really bad a week at work where nothing seemed to be going right and things, you know, personally as well weren't, weren't the best. And I came back home and I just was itching for something to, to just, just do something creative, you know, not, 
nothing to do with spreadsheets, numbers, nothing at all. Just you know, I think we both, you know, you, you both kind of alluded to this. It's it's a process of removing yourself from kind of the day to day and entering a world of the imagination, and that's how it happened. I you know fired up the laptop and I started to write, and um, that turned into a short story, and I found I enjoyed that so much that I wrote five or six more. And that was really the springboard, you know, kind of diving off, you know, and jumping into the deep end and starting a novel. Mm. So things almost kind of just happened. I, it, was it planned? Um, no. <laughs> Again, just very lucky, I think. Yeah. Uh, Davey, Debbie in Tiger Hills and Lila and Rose. I always looked at Lila and Rose as the same woman but different sides as I was reading that. And Lily and her mother and her mother's mother. Those characters, those people were so strong and powerful and some of the situations and circumstances that they had to endure were unbelievable and yet very real because it happens. It happened and it still happens. And I was curious what you learned from your characters and your family. What? Should okay. I? I? Well, I'll start. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> We're so polite. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. They're so polite because they, they're writers, <laughs> as opposed to authors. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, I... Just kidding. I, tell, um, I t- often tell my students the biggest fiction in a memoir is that the story ends. Um, real life keeps going, and you're still trying to make out the meaning of your story and your mother's story and your mother's mother's story. Probably for the rest of my life, I'll, try, I'll be trying to make sense of that, um, of, of those stories. And um, <clears throat> I will say one thing that I learned... Um, was I had had you know many many years in which I was trying to distance myself um, from my family and from Iran too, and I really learned um, the extreme tenacity. Um, in my mother's case, she'd been married so young; she'd remade herself over and over again. She'd done the unthinkable, um, and I only ever knew her as sort of my strange Iranian mother, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't much like her. So. The great gift, um, the great thing that I learned is that she'd been once a girl who was very afraid. And the terrible thing she endured absolutely gave me the mother I had. Um, it lent a humanity to her, um, in particular writing the book, that I don't think I could have got at any other way. Um, so it's, I think, something that many people come to. If you're lucky when you're older, um, you first you can first meet your parents as people, not just your parents, mm-hmm. um, with the script that you think you know, um, but perhaps encounter a script that confuses or troubles or complicates who you think your parents were and why they became the parents they were to you. So many things, and I'm still, as I say, I'm still working at working out the meanings. Um, the great fiction is that I found it out, and it ends on page, what is it, 324 <laughs> of this book. It doesn't. I'm, I'll probably spend the rest of my life figuring out the meanings of those stories. Um, I would say that there were two things I learned. Uh, I would have to agree, Jasmine. Uh, I, I learned to uh, have a deeper um, understanding and compassion for my own mother, too. My mother had me when she was 15 years old. So you can imagine that the world, um, for me, was one where I had to navigate a lot of uh, the treachery on my own. And I had to sort of raise myself up. Uh, there's a lot of talk about raising a girl being in the world, raising herself up in, in, in my uh, story. And um, 
you know, through this process, it has been, um, I have, I've, you know, mostly been a, a woman in, in the world who, you know, sort of gets things done by the sheer will and determination, putting one step in front of the other. And I think that the process of, of sort of birthing this book was one where I had to sort of revert almost uh, to a childhood I never had. Mm-hmm. And my mother was my mother during that time, um, through, through the writing of this book. And I was very surprised to learn that. And um, I, have, I, I now know and understand my mother in a way that perhaps I, I never did. And it is a great relationship. She's a lot of fun. And, um, and she's a hoot. Um, the second thing that I've learned, I think that my, my book for me in many ways is, is a call to deepen faith. And, um, you know, this book was precipitated by the death of my younger brother, um, was 25 years old. And it was um, probably the single most you can imagine. Um, and so it caused me to uh, ask some questions, uh, you know, for myself and for my life. What am I here? What am I doing? And, and whatever it is, get to it. Um, and so it, it, it urged me uh, forward to, um, and, and, you know, it, you know, it's audacious to think, you know, write a book and, and make a movie and, and hope that you can, you can do something that's positive in, in the world and maybe you can help heal people, their grief, um, because I feel like grief is, is, the, is, is the single most profound emotion that humans don't deal with. And I think that if you don't deal with grief in some way, it just comes out in other parts of your life in the strangest ways. And, and, and you know, sometimes you've forgotten about it, but it's always a way back to that. Um, and so I hope that this book helps people in the way that it has uh, helped me uh, deal with grief. You know, it's interesting. You talked about grief, and there is a similar um, there is a similar theme in Tiger Hills as well. The notion of things, you know, bitterness kind of festering, um, and if you don't let things go, it just accumulates. There's actually a passage in the book which talks about hurt and how it accumulates. Um, and I think that was kind of that started off as a germ of an idea, and that really kind of strengthened in the pro- during the process of writing the book. Um, the idea being that you know very often um, we're placed in circumstances that are not of our choosing, um, and life doesn't really go you know the way we had planned it to. But the thing to remember is that more often than not, we have a choice in terms of how we react to those circumstances. And um, that's the theme that's kind of, you know, most of the characters in the book, at one point or another, um, they are placed in, you know, the path of happenstance, and things happen to them, but they react to them with kind of varying degrees of of morality, of good and of bad. Um, And I think in exploring all these different characters, the choices they make, and then, you know, exploring the ripple effects through, kind of the domino effects of, you know, a choice made, a decision taken, and then seeing how that impacts different lives, um, different generations years later, that kind of, it, it, um, it strengthened that philosophy for me, probably, where, you know, you really have to be, um, um, there, you know, there are very few decisions that you can take lightly, um, and the choices that you make, I think it's important to remember that the choices you make can have, you know, far wide reading. Um, the impact that they can carry is often really wide um, ranging, and it can impact people kind of, you know, 
not just you, but people around you as well. So I think you know those ideas kind of um, deepened and strengthened during the process of writing the book and tracing the, the, the stories of all these characters as well. Okay, one last question from me, and then we're going to open it up for questions from you. Um, in terms of your current projects, what might that be in your heart and then on paper? And what book are you reading now, or books are you reading now? Uh, you know, it's funny when you were talking about how um, you, when you had, you were swimming in oceans of time, <laughs> acres. in acres of time. Um, I find, you know, I, I've taken a, a short sabbatical from work, and the idea was that, you know, I was going to, um, you know, write my second novel, and if I wrote this in kind of such snatched time, and it took me five years, within six months, I should have had, like, you know, at least the first draft ready. Mm-hmm. So in my head, that was September 16th, uh, 2010, while we're way past March 16th, and I've done three pages. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> and I, but I have 250 pages of research, so, you know, it's very tempting to, you know, to, I, have, I have something in my, you know, there's something in very nebulous form in my head. There's a theme that I want to write about. Um, there's a setting, and it's different than, you know, Kurg, it's different from India. Um, but it's also very tempting to just, you know, find, you know, ways and paths to do research. Um, and, you know, when you're doing, when, when the idea is as nebulous as it is, anything is research. So anything that's of interest on the Internet kind of finds its way into my file, and that grows fatter and fatter, and hours go by, and then, you know, maybe I write a sentence, you know. So, um, well, I guess short story short, I mean, long story short, um, I do have an idea in my head, but I need to get my act together and get cracking on it. <laughs> I love this question so much because it uh, suggests that there will be a second book, and I think <laughs> it's hard to uh, to hope for that. We have said so, and yeah. it is so. It, it will it will be. Uh, yeah, I'm. I find myself drawn back again and again to Iran. Um, this book was a recovery of my mom's story, but also a recovery for me of Iran, which in many ways I. I'd lost um, coming to America. So I'm writing a novel actually set in 1950s Iran about Iran's renegade poet. Um, She wrote erotic verse in the 1950s. Someone probably who Americans can't even imagine such a woman existed in Iran in the 50s and 60s. She was a filmmaker as well um, and an actress. So a really extraordinary woman whose story... Uh, can't be told. Um, a lot of gaps um, in what can be told about her life. Were I writing in Iran, um, it would be really difficult to recover that story. So um, I find I have tremendous, um, tremendous, the, the sort of the gift to tell a story that couldn't be told in the place of its origin is one that um, that's very precious to me. Uh, so I'd like to write her I will write her story, um, and I'm drawn in my reading. I, I read a lot of nonfiction, um, probably the last, as Emily Dickinson, you know, she put it, um, the last book that blew the top of your head right off. You know, The last one that did that for me was The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Mm. Um, it's just such an extraordinary story and so wonderfully told. So I read a lot of biographies like that about women, um, about women whose lives we might not otherwise encounter but for the extraordinary passion of a writer who finds, um, who finds and tells that story again. Uh, so that was the last one that blew the top of my head off. <laughs> um, and I'm a great reader. I, reading made me a writer. Um, and I'm always, if I'm not writing, I'm reading. That's just how it goes. It's like breath to me reading is yeah. um, I, I just finished Wench um, as I did an event uh, recently with Dolan 
who's a fabulous woman. And Dawn uh, was here last year. Oh, Sit, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Oh, all right. Maybe I have a little, little of her luck. <laughs> and um, also, right now, I'm reading uh, uh, 32 Candles, Ernesta Carter's 32 Candles. Those, uh, um, so um, what I'm working on, wow. Right now, I'm finishing up. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm technically finished with the movie Butterfly Rising. We're just doing the color correction uh, right now. It should take about a week. And now, uh, you know, my focus will be solely on uh, um, the film festival circuit um, for this film um, that I did, you know, from scratch and raised the money for. And so, so, you know, it's like, it's like having a baby and find out you're having twins. You know, you have this book and then you have this movie and you know and now they're they're going to be out in the world at the same time and I'm I'm over the moon you know I don't I don't know it's an extraordinary opportunity to 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 have written a book um and then also write and direct the movie of that book it is uh, an extraordinary I feel so lucky about that I just because it's exactly the way I I I envision these characters and the setting is exactly the way that I saw it and even the clothes that they wear. And um, so, you know, I directed this movie mostly by default because I said to myself, if I give the script to somebody and they mess it up, then I'm going to have to cut them. You know what I mean? (laughs) And so, you know, if it gets messed up, it's on me. Um, and, And it is exactly what I wanted it to be. So I'm very excited to um, share that with the world. And then I'm also working on some other things that have nothing to, you know, I do have another book, but again, because the obsession happens with the book, I'm going to have to retreat from the world, and I'm not in a a position where I can retreat right now. I have to be fully in it. Um, But, you know, I have, like, this television series that is big and bawdy and um, just over the top and one of the most fun things I have ever written that has nothing to do with literary fiction or anything remotely serious, but that is my next project that I, I'm, I'm eager to get out into the world and to share with everybody. Questions? Joy, you have a question, I know. Um, there are things that are described in the story, for instance, there's something, there's, you know, there's a tiger wedding in here, there's a tiger hunt. Um, um, you know, Kurg, the people from Kurg, um, they, um, there's, there's, a, there's a huge tradition of hunting, of bravery, of, of valor. So, Things like that are rooted in reality, but the story itself is fictional. And I almost went kind of, you know, to my utmost to make sure it was fictional because um, Kork tends to be a very, it's still a small, very close-knit community. And I did not want to kind of inadvertently go and offend somebody and have someone come up to me and say, you know, that was my great-grand-aunt and you've written about her in this book. Mm-hmm. So I just, you know, I, I steered as completely away as, you know, from, from real life as I could. Um, having said that, I mean, I think each, when you create characters, I think they're all composites of people that you've known or have heard of or have observed. So the central protagonist, Devi, is a woman of great strength, and she's, you know, she's, again, very tenacious, very strong-headed, and she definitely is modeled on my great-grandmother. Um, you know, she was, um, she was widowed very young. Um, she had six children. My grandfather was the youngest. He was barely a year old when my great-grandfather passed away. And um, she single-handedly brought up all the children, managed the estates, the, you know, the land, made sure they were all educated. Um, and she's still talked about to this day in the family as being somebody of you know, great spirit and great character. So some of that definitely made its way into the book. <laughs> it's, it's not the next 
book, but it's, it's maybe it's it, maybe it's kind of ambitious. But no, I'd love to kind of revisit the characters and revisit the setting again. Um, I, I I know there are more stories there to be uncovered, but it's something that again I just want to let it. You know, you talked about leaving it aside the draft for a, for a, um, for a year, and I feel the same way. This has been this has been my life for so long that um, I just wanted to let it gestate for a little while, do something else, and then come back to it again. But yes. Well, I get one class of reactions, which is um, often it's a male. Forgive the men. I for, please forgive me, men in the room. But there are men who will often accost me and say, "Well." you know, this never happened in Iran. Women didn't get married at age 13. My mother got married when she was 21. Therefore, this is not a true story or a representative one. And then I get another class of men often, they're often not always men, but they are often men who say, well, this happened all the time in Iran. Um, Women were married so young always. Um, And what's so different or unusual or worth telling about your family story? Um, But this is really, I think this is reserved to those um, who haven't read the book. I'm really touched and heartened when I encounter Iranians who've read the book, and they tell me, almost always, without exception, they say, how did you do it? You came here when you were so young. How could you possibly have conjured this world that is lost even to Iranians? Iran of the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s is lost even to Iranians. And I'm so, I'm so heartened, you can imagine, when they find I've written something true and authentic, um, told a story that hasn't been told really before, um, not in this fashion in any case. Um, I had a woman in New York when I was uh, first starting out my book tour. She was a psychologist, and she said to me, you know, thank you, because there are women in this town right now who couldn't tell this story. Thank you for telling this story. And that's it. That's all I need. It's done. I've done it well to get that from someone. This is Wendy Coakley from the DC Examiner. And Wendy, thank you. Wendy has been so instrumental in getting the word out about this program in addition to the Baltimore Times. So thank you. Being an actor helps me to be a better writer. And um, um, yes. And I also believe that Yes, I did have to get out of it, the, Holly, uh, the Hollywood uh, machinery. It is big, and it is complicated, and it is challenging. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I came back home. I lived in Los Angeles for 15 years, and I literally uh, I now uh, live in uh, New York City again. Um, but, you know, I still have to travel to uh, Los Angeles for work. But I like it just great and fine that way. I did this movie outside of the studio system. Um, I did this book out of, uh, you know, conventional uh, publishing system. Um, And it just serves me. It serves me. It serves who I am. And um, it served the time that I was in. And, um, you know, I may not ever have another opportunity to do it exactly the way I want to because probably next time there'll, there'll be more money involved. Probably next time there'll be more people involved and I'll have to compromise. And But this time I did it just the way I wanted to do it. And I'm, I'm so happy. And I hope, you know, I did it responsibly because, you know, I was using someone else's money. And my intention is to sell this movie so that... Uh, he can make his money back, and I can make a little for myself. Thank you very much. <laughs> Law did nothing for me. Um, <laughs> just completely wasted on me. Um, 
you know, I mean, strangely, strangely, before ever having known that my mom had been married and had, um, she'd been married and uh, had suffered domestic abuse, strangely, I was, when I was a lawyer, I worked in legal aid and I counseled women victims of domestic abuse without ever having known that my own mother had endured that. Um, So it's, it, it absolutely, it seems extraordinary to me that I chose that path. But I think for me, law was, there were so many constraints in how people would, what stories people were willing to tell you and how you could tell them. I felt really um, constrained by the, the legal discourse and the mechanism of law. Um, and I find that all that passion I have for those kinds of issues, I enlist in my writing. Um, I'm very much preoccupied with the same things I was when I was 22 and a lawyer working in that little office in legal aid and trying to get those women to tell me what they were going through. Um, It's still the same girl, still in pursuit of the same kind of stories, but now I think I have the license to really tell them, um, and it's it's a great, great privilege. Um, And uh, uh, the other thing I wanted to say is I think it's really wonderful not to necessarily be so preoccupied with publishing very early on. I feel really grateful that I began my formal career as a writer in my 30s rather than in my 20s. I think at that moment when I was, you know, just um, a young woman coming out of college or a young attorney, um, I think I was really too young. And I think it's really important to read and to write. But I think it's it, life serves you well as a writer and especially um, wait, waiting for a story, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily setting out at 21 thinking you're going to sell that big novel, but letting life work into you and through you um, for a decade has been phenomenally important to me as a writer. Um, And I am very grateful that I come to writing in my 30s now and not necessarily at that moment of time. But of course, everything, even law, um, has its purposes and and uses. Um, Law, like so much of, so many of the other terrible mistakes I made, um, have worked uh, through me and and find a home in my writing now. I was, I was, but a girl. I was very young. I was um, in my, yeah. Uh, my family is, yeah. Um, excuse me, one sec. We're not finished with that question. Sarita, can you give us your um, answer? Sure. Thank um, you. Um, uh, I, okay, so I, 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 I lost my train of thought a little bit. Um, it was interesting when you talked about, you know, I think, I mean, for me as well, I think um, just all that living, you know, I, before writing the book, I, I grew up in India. Um, I worked in Hong Kong for a bit and then, you know, came to the U.S. for business school, lived and worked um, in New York, so I think, yes, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a big advantage to kind of having lived a certain number of years of your life, and, you know, all of that channels its way into your writing. Um, as far as kind of whether investment banking or, like, finance helped me in any way, I, I, there's such different fields, and I feel like there's such different parts of me um, that there wasn't very much kind of common ground, as it were. And, you know, when I actually think about my work day and kind of what I, you know, writing, it's almost kind of polar opposite. So during the day, um, you're constantly interacting with people. You're on the phone. And, um, you know, what I do, I, I, I work in private equity. And it, it really deals with looking at a vast amount of data and um, disseminating that and kind of distilling that into kind of a core thesis. And in some ways, when you're writing, it's almost exactly the opposite. You're working in solitude, and you're following kind of one train of thought, you know, down, like watching it unspool, and it, it comes out with all these different directions. So it's almost, you know, funneling downwards during the day, and it's the exact opposite at night. 
So I think the way I wrote and the way I kind of think about it is kind of very compartmentalized, if you will. Um, you know, going to work during the day and it's just you shut out the, the story, shut out the plot, you shut out the characters, and you just try and focus on the workday, on your Excel spreadsheets, and then try and flip the switch. And like I said, you know, there is a transition period between kind of shifting from the workday to the writing mode. Um, but once you're in, or once, you know, I started writing, then it was very much kind of in this fictional world and almost exercising a different part of my brain, if it, as it were. Mm-hmm. How many published writers do we have out here? Just raise, a hand, raise your hands. Let me see. Okay. And how many want to be published? How many people are writers? I see a yeah, row of young ladies. <laughs> Nobody raised their hand, young ladies. Are you writers? Readers? What? You could talk. No? No writers? Do, do, you, do you like to read? Obviously. Yeah. So maybe you'll take your turn at writing. Any advice for the writers out here in terms of that whole writing process and, you know, what could you share with them? You, you guys, you know, you graduated. You published books. <laughs> you know, I think I would just, you know, use, um, you know, literally just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, just jump in and do it. There's never going to be a right time or kind of, you know, the right frame of mind. Um, I, I, and I, I need to do a lot more of that as well now. So, you know, I need to follow my own advice. But really, just sit down and write, um, whether it's 500 words, whether it's 1,000 words, whatever it is, but do it, and do it every day. And you'll find that just that you, you will start accumulating a body of work. Um, but you've, it, nothing's going to happen if you don't sit down and kind of put in the effort and, you know, make the effort to put those words on the screen, on the paper, whatever it is. So just start. I think you have to read like mad um, if you want to write. And I recently had a friend who, who gave a bit of, I think, really sound advice is to find a writer who you love, who's doing that thing, that magic thing with words that you want to do, and just read doggedly every single thing that writer has written. And then you find the next one, and then you find the next one. Um, and I think that's not bad advice to read lots and lots. I think it's a really important moment when you stop writing just for yourself and you begin to imagine an audience. So at some moment, you will trust um, that you're ready to make that transition. For me, it was in my mid-20s. I started writing really what were blog entries. And that was, for me, that threshold moment where I moved from writing stories for myself or journal entries and imagining just very vaguely that someone might write. Um, It's a very different exercise once you begin to find your words um, oriented toward uh, a reader, a potential reader. And that might be just your school newspaper. It might be um, a blog, something like that. But I think that's a really important moment in a young writer's life when you start to know that your words might reach somebody. That's really transformative. I would say to uh, it would, it would, I would uh, suggest that uh, writers surround themselves with people who are going to be rigorous with them. I had a very rigorous, uh, very experienced editor. She was quite rigorous with me, and I, I, um, I, I, you know, spoke to a lot of editors in the, in the process. And you know, I do a lot of things at the end of the day by uh, just pure uh, gut instinct. And she was uh, rigorous with me. Um, she took me to task. And in, in the best and, and, and most fruitful ways that, that made the book better. And she, um, you know, I think, too, after a while, you, you, you write and you listen to notes because, you know, a lot of people say things. And, and, and then after a while, you, I think you, you begin to, to develop this thing where you can listen to a note and know that you don't know why that's right, 
<laughs> um, but you know it's right, and you just might have to sit with it or, I don't know, stream a con, you know, however you arrive to, to whatever, but, but just uh, be open to what you hear. Be open to everything, I think, at first, and then the things that resonate as true will stay, and the things that don't will sort of sift down to the top, to the bottom. Give me five words to describe Tiger Hill, Butterfly Rising, and the good daughter. IQ test. (laughs) Just five words. Come on, you wrote them. Just five? Just five words. Um, Easy. um, I'd pick um, um, a saga. Um, I keep coming back to the word story. I mean, I think there's... a story, you know. There, there is a, there is a definite story here with its twists and turns, and it's um, this plot. Um, I would describe it as a novel of um, of. That's seventy-five words right there. <laughs> saga. Okay, saga story. Story. Um, hope. Um, uh, emotion. Mm-hmm. And um, redemption. I would say, but I guess it's a form of. Okay, well. saga story. Hope, redemption, and emotion. Emotion. Butterfly rising. Um, transformation, faith, love, death, women. <laughs> the good daughter. Secrets, mothers, daughters, sacrifice, love. There you have it, folks. <laughs> I tell you, I, I absolutely love this event. It, it is one of my favorite events. I get to read fabulous books. And for me, it's wonderful to have writers who write. I, this is one of my pet peeves. Wendy knows. I'm always complaining about there's lots of books that are published in the industry. There are a lot of authors. Not all authors actually write. But these ladies actually write. I know that sounds a little strange, right? Yeah. There are authors. When you, when you get your book published, you're an author. Just because you get a book published does not make you a writer. I say that as a reader. I say that as a professional in the book publishing industry. I'm probably one of the few that says that publicly. But that's <laughs> the truth. So when I get to do this event, I get to say to Judy and Joy, hey, this is great writers, great books. Let's do this. And they okay, I, I don't think this one time in the four or five years I've done this, they said, nah, Linda, that's a terrible writer. It never <laughs> happened. So this is one of my favorite, favorite events. Um, thank you, Enoch Pratt. Thank you, Judy and your staff. Joy Bramble and the Baltimore Times. Wendy Coakley, the DC Examiner. Ella Curry is uh, a person who is, she created Black Pearl Magazine and Band Radio. She was supposed to do a series of interviews and from her hospital bed sent me an email. Linda, um, I'm getting my heart checked in the heart unit onto the stomach. And I was like, this woman is super duper dedicated. So Ella has always contributed to this event. And literally two days ago, she was emailing me from her hospital bed saying, on the website, all the books will be on the front page. I was like, Ella, please take care of yourself. We got this. Thank you. So Ella Curry, a big shout out to her. And of course, the audience. You guys always come through. Thank you, thank you, and thank you. And the fabulous writers, Sarita Mandana, Tiger Hills, and Tanya Wright.
Uh, Butterfly Rising, Jasmine Darsnick, The Good Daughter, thank you. Thank you.